Okay, uh, I think we're ready for verse 16 of chapter 1. Uh, but since the paragraph, I think, starts in verse 15, let's uh, read 15 through the end of the chapter. Do I have a volunteer to do that? <coughs> Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Right? This is the NIV. Okay. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Okay, thank you. So in verse 16, Paul says that, you know, he makes mention of them in his prayers. And apparently Paul was in the habit of doing that. You know, praying for brethren uh, individually or collectively, probably both. Uh, that seems to be his habit. And for us, do we pray more for others or do we pray more for ourselves? Either one's okay. But I think the example of Paul would be we should focus on praying for others more than for ourselves. Uh, Paul was certainly concerned about the Christians and wanted them to you know, receive wisdom and revelation uh, through God's means of communicating, uh, through preaching, through the reading of the inspired word. Uh, and even back at that time, there were some... Uh, you know, miraculous revelations and prophecies uh, that we don't have today because we have the uh, the completed word. But getting that would then in turn for the Christians uh, help them to possess the spiritual qualities and characters that are affected and changed by this revelation that they take in. Uh, the specific prayer of Paul here is for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Uh, this wisdom and re- revelation are developed when one who has the proper spirit meditates upon the word of God. The knowledge of him comes through reading God's word. And we certainly see passages that talk about that. Romans 10 verse 17 Uh, Psalm 119, 105, and 130 
are a couple that come to mind. And Paul's prayer assumes certain factors involving their faith and their character. Uh, It assumes their love for the truth. And if we don't have a love for the truth, what dangers will we encounter? Any thoughts on that? Okay. Okay. And other elements of life, maybe not having patience when uh, things are, when society is being led astray through fear, mm-hmm. um, that could have a full uh, effect. Okay. It's a particular passage I'm thinking of. Anybody have one in mind? Look over in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2, uh, starting in verse 10, and says, And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, and for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they might believe what is false, in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. That's a scary passage. If we don't have a love for the truth, God's going to not only let us believe a lie, He's going to send a strong delusion such that we would. So, we need to make sure we have a love for the truth. Not go into a study of God's Word with, I know the answer already. And I'm going to find it in here. But no, I want to know what God says. And I want to know what God wants me to do. And if we go in with that kind of attitude, having a love for the truth, then we'll be much better off. So, he assumed that they had a love for the truth. It also assumes that they gave diligence to maintain the unity of the Spirit by meditating upon and studying the Scriptures to know the unifying truths that are able to save. So, they're unified through their faith, through the Scriptures. Uh, And that's something that's very important and was a part of of this prayer and it also assumes that they put away the former sinful life and set their priorities based upon what God's word says and then they'll avoid letting men deceive them into accepting something that's not the truth So, Paul here in in his prayer asking for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Uh, 
that uh, those things fall, I think, into that category. And then he says, I pray that the, li- that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the, sa- in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So he identifies three things there. The hope of his calling. Hope is confident desire, assured expectation. The calling of God is accomplished through the gospel. I mean, we're called by the gospel. Uh, if we'd have kept reading the Second Thessalonians 2, uh, we would have run into that in the next couple of verses. Uh, and also, God, who does the calling, is faithful and we can be assured of that so the hope of his calling is the eternal reward promised in the gospel our inheritance which we'll ultimately receive and he goes on to talk about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints so not only our inheritance but as we talked about Sunday God's inheritance we're his heritage and Paul says that saints are counted by God as great riches or wealth God is glorified by his inheritance by the saints as we live the kind of lives that he tells us to live God receives glory for that and then the exceeding greatness of his power Uh, God's power is beyond measure. It's more than enough to change us if we'll allow it, if we'll let his word dwell in our hearts. Uh, Change us into living for the Lord and not for ourselves. Uh, Paul used his own example to encourage Timothy to trust in God's power in his life. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, says for the which cause I also suffer these things nevertheless I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day when he talks about the exceeding greatness of his power he uses four different Greek words for power accompanied by two adjectives that you know modify that and these are some words that we're familiar with maybe not in the greek but some english words that come from that this first word here uh the surpassing greatness of his power that's the greek word dunamos it's the word that we get dynamite from dynamite powerful yep but in front of that he says the surpassing greatness of his power so you put all that together you've got a tremendously powerful force an exceptional mega force might be a a term that we would use today And then, 
Later on in verse 19, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. The word working there, that's the word we get our word energy from. Uh, refers to a momentum or force in operation. Uh, and it's most often translated work. Uh only in Philippians 2 and verse 13 is that, use, is that word used of human activity. Generally, it is spoken of as God's activity, God's force in action, uh, is that word working. And then mighty refers to the presence of strength or force as an inherent or natural attribute. And that word is never used in the scriptures of man. So it suggests the sovereign supreme might of God that only God has and only God can claim. And then finally the word power. uh, That was a term most often used of military strength or the force to conquer. So Those are the power words. And so God's power to us who believe uh, is a very strong force. And he ties that in with the raising of Christ from the dead. And so the power he's talking about is the same power that cause Christ to raise from the dead. Uh, And so we need to be cognizant of that and recognize how important it is that we follow after that power. Uh, Because he goes on in the uh, in the rest of the verses there to talk about four things that are all tied together and one kind of goes from the other. The first is he raised Christ from the dead. (coughs) Secondly, he made him to sit at his right hand. Thirdly, he put all things in subjection to him. And fourthly, he gave him to be head over all things to the church. So, God showed his power in raising Christ from the dead. Uh, It's hard to think of a greater display of power, really. Uh, In fact, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. That resurrection was the crowning miracle. I mean, Jesus performed a lot of miracles, but his resurrection from the dead, to never die again, was the crowning miracle. The Jews had done all they could to defeat him. And so had the Romans. Jesus was dead. But he didn't stay that way. 
then God used his power to raise him from the dead. And God's power is always stronger than man's power and stronger than the power of sin. Stronger than the power that the devil has. And that goes clear back to the beginning, if you'll recall. In Genesis chapter 3, the seed of woman, the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of woman. But the seed of woman would bruise the head of Satan and give a crushing blow. So, we've talked about how these things were you know, determined before the world began. And so, God in the Garden of Eden was was talking about that. So, definitely in his plans from the very beginning. And then the Corinthians were encouraged by uh, God's power as well. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57. Says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That same power is promised to Christians. This power that raised Christ from the dead is promised to us to raise us from the dead, both literally, you know, from physical death, we will be raised, and spiritually from eternal death. Uh, And so, uh, in Colossians chapter 2, it helps to kind of connect that in verse 12, because the, the power is exerted spiritually when one is baptized into Christ. It says, buried with him in baptism, wherein uh, also ye have risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. So, having raised Christ from the dead, then God used his power to sit him at his right hand. The idea of being positioned at the right hand, it's a position of authority, a position of rule. Uh, but yet there are some that would deny that Christ is ruling in his kingdom today. Uh, the premillennialists say it's it's coming. Uh, but it's not coming, it's here. And we're a part of that kingdom. Uh, also the right hand would show the closeness of the relationship of Christ and the Father Uh, and then verse 21 says tells us that Christ's position is far above any other forces and there's some great and powerful forces in this world but they're nothing compared to the power of Christ he's over them He's above them. He is highly exalted, as the song that we sometimes sing talks about. 
And it also says, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. So, not only does Christ have this power now, but he'll always have that. There'll never be a time that he doesn't have that power. Everything is under him except for the Father himself. And then, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, after Jesus' resurrection in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, he says, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. He possesses ultimate power over all things in the sense that all things have been placed under his authority. The only thing that we don't see totally abolished yet is death itself. Although Christ, you know, God has shown his power over death in raising Christ. And ultimately, that will be the last enemy that will be abolished. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 also talks about that. And says he gave Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Uh, So, putting the head, Christ, together with the body, the church, us, is the way God has designed it. The church is Christ's great spiritual assembly or gathering of called out people. It separates the redeemed into a collective relationship which is set apart from the world. All who are in Christ are identified as the church. And that's something the Lord adds us to. The church is like one big family and you don't have to travel all that much to figure that out I mean, Deborah and I have traveled a lot and it's pretty rare that we would worship with the congregation and wouldn't run across somebody there that at least knows somebody that we know uh you know, most of the time you'll run across some connections. I mean, we were out in Oregon a couple years ago, and somebody found out we were from Indiana, and like, you know Norm? <laughs> like, yeah, I know Norm. <clears throat> and uh, I, at the time, didn't realize he'd grown up in Oregon. But, uh, I mean, this is a guy, oh, we used to ride motorcycles together. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so yeah, yeah, we're we're all part of that family. And that's a that's a great blessing. Okay, any uh thoughts or comments on that before we uh we get into chapter two? Uh Chris. It's interesting some of the things that he doesn't pray for. Okay. He would he would almost be out of place if he prayed for us today, you know, because we don't we tend not to pray quite the same way. Look at everything he says there. It's all spiritual. There's not one mention of the physical things. I don't have a problem with that, but oftentimes that is all we pray for is the physical things. 
and he doesn't mention you know, safe travels or uh, get you know healthy or that they can be back with us or <laughs> those catchphrases that we have become yeah. so accustomed to. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point, and I mean, it's pretty clear that God is more interested in our spiritual well-being than in our physical well-being. Uh, and you know, we we talked about that some, I think, on on Sunday. Uh, yeah, correct. And some of the things that he prays for are, it almost seems like he's trying to shore up their faith to remind them who mm-hmm. their king is, mm-hmm. the extent of his power, um, because in, in just a few decades' time, uh, the Emperor Domitian would be honored in this city. He would mm-hmm. have, they would have a temple constructed for him in this city. And he would go on to to severely persecute Christians. Um, so twenty one just really kind of stands out to me that he wants these Christians to know that it's Christ who has the rule and authority and power and dominion, and His name mm-hmm. is more impressive than any other name, mm-hmm. not only in this age but in the one to come. So he, he's kind of setting them up for it. No matter what's going to happen in the future. Jesus already has all the ruling domain and authority, um, even when these emperors, perhaps, is what he's thinking of, may come and try to claim those things for themselves. Mm-hmm. Christ is better and, and stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not only in this age, but in what's to come as well. Yeah, good point. Anything else? Okay, uh, let's look at chapter two. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter two? Yeah, Phil. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By the grace you have been saved by the grace by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Okay, thank you. Uh, Does anybody have, for the first verse, something to the effect that, uh, and you hath he quickened, or you hath he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins? Are you looking at a... A new King James, yeah. Uh, are some of those words in italics? Mm-hmm. 
the uh, you hath he hath made alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're they're not in the original text, uh, so they've been supplied by the translators, thinking they needed to do that. Actually, the Holy Spirit brings those words in in verse five. <laughs> so, I mean, the idea is there. But it seems like the Spirit wanted to emphasize the horrible nature of sin from which they'd been delivered. You know, you... I mean, you were dead. And when you think about death, that's something we don't like to think about. You know, we as humans kind of try to avoid that. Now, we're not always successful. Uh, but what what is death? Yeah, how would you define death? I guess we'd have to settle on if we're talking about physical or spiritual. <laughs> I've actually got a definition that fits both. (laughs) Not alive. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the scriptures talk about death being a separation. Uh, You know, James chapter 2, the body without the spirit is dead. So a separation of body and spirit. Uh, And, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That wasn't a physical death, but a spiritual death. And what do our sins do to us? Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 answers that question says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So, our sins separate us from God. And that would be spiritual death. So, separation would cover both. Uh, And spiritual is what you know Paul has in mind here uh, in Ephesians two, uh, and so he says, "You are dead in your trespasses and sins." Says in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So he uses several phrases to kind of describe that. You know, walking uh, as the uh, as you formerly did in the course of this world. Uh, the world has a course of sin. The, the manner of living for the sinner is, you know, emphasizing worldly things. And Paul says we we used to live that way. And I, I think we can all say we used to live that way. 
we lived uh, as sinners in the world, uh, which caused us to be carried into the evil, wicked thinking that characterizes those in the world. So the the course is like literally the age, referring to the spirit of the times, uh, the atmosphere of that particular period of time in which they lived. And I think we could say the same thing today. Uh, you know that the atmosphere in the world is is generally sinful. First uh, John chapter two verses fifteen through seventeen. You know, John exhorts the Christians, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Then he talks about the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Satan is called the God of this world. Jesus called him that. Uh, John 12, verse 31, John 14, verse 30, John 16, verse 11. Uh, And Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, and verse 4, says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. So, the devil has his realm, and it's this world. Uh, and he seems to, to own most of it. He's got most of us. Uh, that doesn't mean he's more powerful than God. But most, it seems, choose to follow him. And the devil is working. He's not indifferent, sitting around, you know, being lazy? No, he's working. He's trying to get people to follow after him. And so we need to be on guard for that. And then in verse 3, he says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So lusts are passionate longings, earnest desires. Uh, Is lust always bad? It's kind of a trick question. We tend to think of it in that terms. But actually, the the word used there for lust uh, sometimes is used in a good sense in the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus in Luke 22 verse 15 uh, when he was uh, instituting the Lord's Supper this last Passover says with desire that's the same word here is lust I have desired it's a form of that same word to eat this Passover with you before I suffer and then Paul in Philippians 1 verse 23 For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So, uh, sometimes it's used in a good sense, but most of the time it is used in the scriptures uh, in a a bad sense, where uh, it's drawing you away from God, you know, know, carnal, uh, evil desires. 
like in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Uh, and he talks about the source of these being from the flesh and the mind. Uh, so the physical drives of the flesh, uh, if we you know, let ourselves be uh, consumed by that, will generally take us in the wrong direction, and, uh, and even the mind as well. Uh, so typically, you know, lust causes to try to satisfy uh, carnal uh, desires and pleasures. Uh, and then he uses the phrase, and we're by nature the children of wrath. Uh, and really the word nature just you know, means this is what they did. Their continued practice of sin led them to, to sin. Uh, and so it's kind of a, an acquired nature by the way that they live. But... Uh, it cause it causes like our Calvinist friends to to insist that nature means you know it's a natural state at birth and that man is born totally depraved by hereditary heredity so we couldn't we couldn't be anything but sinful and evil but. Paul argued in Romans chapter 2 and verse 14 that the Gentiles did did by nature what was good. So, if nature means totally depraved and born depraved, then how could the Gentiles have by nature done anything good? Uh, And so, that's really an unreasonable definition of that word nature. Uh, But certainly walking in sin is loathsome to God and should be to all righteous thinking people. But then uh, he shifts gears and says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and made us alive together with Christ, Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, uh, and then I also want to read verse 7. It says, In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, so in this passage, Paul uses four words to describe God's character and his interest in man. Mercy, love, grace, and kindness. And he starts off with mercy, and he says God is rich in this in mercy. And he uses rich here in verse 4 and also verse 7. Uh, so God's mercy, love, grace, and kindness are offered to man in abundance. Uh, and that should be encouraging to us. Uh, and then he talks about the great love wherewith he loved us. 
Love is active goodwill toward the one loved. It seeks to meet the needs of the object loved. God being rich in mercy is because of his great love, which he loves us. God hates sin, but he offers mercy because he loves the sinner. And then John 3.16 is certainly a passage that comes to mind. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and he was willing to do that. Yeah, Brett. Um, I cannot study Ephesians without thinking of um, a, I guess a gospel meeting we had several years ago with Andy Cantrell, and the... the um, Analogy, their illustration that he used for this. Uh, when when we met, it was pretty soon after the earthquake in Haiti, and they were pulling out bodies. Mm-hmm. And they just they were piling them, lining them up. And um, Andy Cantrell said, "Just imagine you you you've been piling up all these bodies, and all of a sudden, one of them, after two or three days of laying there." sits up and starts walking around and then another one and then another one and then another one he said imagine if you were one of those bodies and you sat up and you started walking around and he said that would be amazing and what Paul is saying here is that if you believe spiritually that God does that's exactly what's happening Every day is God is bringing to life those who were dead, and they're now walking around, and they're to, to the praise of His glory. Mm-hmm. Yep, good point. Okay, and yeah, He says there in verse five, even when we were dead in sins, uh, He made us alive together with Christ. You think about it, it's astounding that God would love mankind even though each of us has rebelled against him. Romans 5 verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So his love was so great, even though we were rebelling against him, he still sent his son. And he makes us alive. Gives us that opportunity. If we'll only come to him on his terms. So he says we were dead. He's made us alive. Uh, The new life is a spiritual life. Uh, So from the moment an individual rises from his death grave, you might say, to walk again among the living... This takes place when we have obedient faith. Uh, This obedient act of faith, our baptism, which itself imitates what Christ has done for us in dying and being buried and then rising again. And you notice he ties us together with Christ. You know, this being dead and being raised again. And you can't separate the two. Yeah, Bob. And he also he, he mimics that same thought there. It says, 
and seated him at his right hand. And look what he says about us. He follows that same train train of thought. And it's, it's interesting to meditate on what that means exactly. In what way are we seated at his right hand? And, you know, maybe saved by the bell there, but... I like I like I have my opinion on that, which I can keep to myself. But <laughs> okay. there's a new life there, uh-huh. and it's not of this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Salvation by grace is the exact opposite of salvation by merit. Uh, I ran across this. So I wanted to to read to you. God's kindness toward us is not because he owes it to us. We have no claim apart from that freely given promise he has offered upon his own initiative in Christ. It is solely by his favor. He forgives and pardons, but we do not earn it. We cannot earn it. There is no act so great that I can place God in the position of being obligated to save me. I cannot be saved by inherent goodness. Strenuous effort, although necessary to please God, does not save through its own intrinsic value. The ground of salvation is God's, not ours. The psalmist said in Psalm 3.8, Salvation is of Jehovah. God's grace is the cause of our salvation. I thought that stated it pretty well. So, but saying that doesn't relieve us of doing anything. You know, we must respond to God's offer and come to Him on His terms in obedient faith. Uh, that doesn't mean that I've earned it, but that grace is conditional. Then also, you know, verse 6 says he raised us up and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, there's three blessings presented here as acts of God on our behalf. God made us alive, he raised us up, and he made us to sit together in heavenly places. Uh, We're raised with Christ, as we mentioned you know, being planted in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resu- uh, resurrection by baptism, Romans 6, 5. Uh, but these three favors only take place in Christ. And so it only comes to us if we're in Christ. Uh, so God wants all to know that he is good and loving above what man can imagine. He shows forth the exceeding riches of his grace, you know, verse 7, to man and to all spiritual beings by providing the opportunity for us to rise from spiritual death to sit with Christ in the spiritual realm. And it says in the ages to come. Uh, and then the word kindness is also used here in verse 7 to describe the character of God. God would have to be kind to offer pardon to to man who openly violates his express will. 
He's extremely, exceedingly kind. And we can, should be eternally grateful for that kindness. Okay, any other thoughts? The uh, bell will be ringing momentarily. I was supposed to get to verse 10. I didn't quite make it, but I got close. Anything, anything at all. Okay. Craig will take over starting Sunday. Thank you for all your comments.